Well, it was suggested by John Clifford that I do a series of teaching regarding the way in which the New Testament uses the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Peter that we began studying on on Sunday mornings at Brantford during the month of August. Now, this will be a series of videos. I don't know how many it will actually end up being, but it'll be a series of videos that will maybe be 10, 15 minutes long. So they will be quite short videos, but we'll continue on. Each video will continue on from where we left off on the last video. And in these videos, we're going to explore the texts, both in the New Testament and the Old Testament uh, portions from where they draw their, their um, texts. And we'll look at some of the examples that are used. We'll look at the some of the exegetical and particularly the hermeneutical challenges that we face when we are looking at these portions, these quotes, these proof texts that are used by the New Testament writers from the Old Testament passages. Now, since the last video message that I spoke at Branford had some rather severe technical issues because of a cable or, or whatever, I thought it might be good to start where that message was. And so that we can add some more uh, additional details as we go along, since our time is not quite as as truncated here as it might be uh, on a Sunday morning where you only have that half hour. We can expand these videos out as many as we desire to have and as many as long as you continue to be interested in hearing them. Um, so we'll spend a little bit more time in some of the Old Testament texts and then we'll move on from, from that. Now, I want to begin reading again here in First uh, Peter, and we're going to begin reading today where we did on our last message, and that is in chapter 2. Now, we'll have to be alluding back to chapter 1 on, on several occasions and, and forward as well as we go through some of these passages. But for this, this tape, uh, let's look at chapter 2. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Coming to him, as to a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scriptures, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word, to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. And the Lord let us blessing, I'm sure to the reading of his precious word. Now, the premise, and this is where we began on that last Sunday morning, the premise on which the first two therefores that we find in the, in the writing of Peter here in 1 Peter um, are based virtually on the same premise. They're based almost identically on the same premise because in chapter one, it says, because you have been 
begotten again to a living hope. You possess an inheritance and you possess a hope because you've been begotten again. And we're not going to go back and explore that word begotten again. You can go back and listen to the first video uh, at Branford to get that information. But because you have been begotten again, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. Rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that leads us to the imperative, which we studied in the first two sessions. Be holy, for I am holy. The uh, imperative to be holy. Now, in this passage... It is based on the fact that you have been born again, which we saw at the end of chapter one. Since you have been born again, the same idea, the same concept of being begotten again, you've been born again of incorruptible seed through the spoken word of God. You have been born again and it lasts forever. It is not temporal and that brings hope. It is from incorruptible seed, so it brings hope. And based on the new birth and based on the hope, therefore lay aside. And this leads to the imperative that says, crave the pure milk of the word. So you've been born again, and that uh, salvation which you possess is uh, everlasting. It goes on and on. It's not like the grass of the field that withers and falls away. It gives you hope. And because you have hope, crave uh, crave the pure milk of the word. Since you have hope, lay aside all of these things. Lay aside malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all evil speaking. Because you have the hope and you have been born again. Now, in the first, you know that you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. You came to him in salvation. Now, in the second, you come to him again, but now you come to him as the living stone chosen of God and precious. So you come to him now as the living stone. Now, the three messages that preceded this one had the same theme of hope and on the basis and foundation of that hope. There was a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, a relationship with the Savior. So the focus of that hope was that relationship which you, which you had with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a theme of the epistle that we have been observing. And that theme continues into chapter 2. Here we find the fifth of Peter's exhortations to the, to the readers. He has already urged them in the cha first chapter to set their hope fully on God's grace. And that idea of setting fully um, is an aorist active imperative, meaning that is something that has taken place. It's a statement of fact, if you will. It is active in the sense that you are the one who's performing the action of the verb, and it's imperative in that it's a command. This is what you are to be doing. You are to be setting your hope fully on God's grace. Set your hope there on the grace of God. Wonderful place to set your hope. Now, the second of these imperatives comes when he tells us to be holy. And we've already mentioned that. Be holy because your heavenly father is holy. And the be, which is the verb there, is, is an heiress passive imperative. Now, that has the idea. And of course, that's coming out of the Septuagint translation. And, and some of the other translations have that um, 
not as an imperative, but as an indicative, but because we're drawing it out here in, and in the um, translations that, that we have, it, it shows up as an imperative. It's an aorist passive imperative. And passive, of course, means that, that you are not the one doing the action. The action is being done to you or performed upon you. So being holy is not necessarily an action that you are called to perform, but it's an action that is being done to you as a result of your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you have a relationship with him, you are to be those who are yielding to the Spirit of God in that God can now be performing in you this action of holiness, being set apart. It's very it's always quite confusing when you look at it with a uh, a passive voice when it has a, an imperative mood because if not if it's not something you actively can do it's something that's being done to you how can it be commanded well it can be commanded in the sense that that we are to be those who are yielding ourselves unto God that he may be performing this work in us or to us now the, the third of the commands is that is to conduct themselves in reverence, to duck, conduct themselves in fear. Pass the so time of your sojourn here in fear. And so you're to be conducting yourself in reverence toward God. Again, it's an aorist passive imperative. It's the same idea. This is a work that the Spirit of God is doing within our lives, causing us to have this reverence, causing us to have this fear of God. And we are to be those who are actively pursuing that kind of relationship where the Lord can work and is working in our lives by His Spirit. Now, the fourth one would be to love one another. And that's the one we saw in last week's lesson. So, to love one another fervently. And we'll see this again later on in the epistle where he'll, he'll say the same thing again, almost identically, he'll say it again. Love one another with a passion. Now this is an aorist active imperative again. So now this is something that we are commanded to do. We are to do this. We are to actively do this. And we recognize that, that uh, as a as the Spirit of God is working in our lives, we are commanded to be those who are actively now loving one another with a passion, fervently loving our brothers and sisters. And then he instructs them to crave spiritual nourishment. And so it has this idea to desire spiritual nourishment. And that again is an aorist active imperative. It is a command that is to be done. It is a fact that is to be completed. We are to be those who are craving after, desiring the milk of the word. Now, we are to be, be uh, desiring that in the same way that a newborn baby craves the milk. You are to desire it that you may grow, that you may grow and be sustained. Now, you are the ones who know its value. You have experienced it. You have experienced its benefit. You have experienced its worth. You know the value of the milk. If, or I suppose we can translate that since, it's, it's like an if of a of a fulfilled condition, a particle of a fulfilled condition. 
So since indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, you have experienced it. You have tasted of the goodness of God. And Scott Dunkerton was making mention of the goodness of God in his last message um, at the beginning of August. That he is a good God and you have experienced his graciousness. You have tasted that the Lord is gracious. He is good. Now this comes from Psalm chapter 34. So we're going to turn to Psalm chapter 34 and we're going to examine that portion a little bit more in a little bit more depth than we did before. And we'll do that in our next in our next video. So thank you for joining us and hope you'll continue on as we look at these, uh, the way in which Peter uses the Old Testament text as his proof text, as his evidence for the things in which he is going to be teaching.